0: Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look into his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is a dimension to it that is way beyond us, that there are things in it that are deep, and there are things in it that are wise, and they uh, come forth from you. Lord, uh, your word tells us that you breathed your word to us, that it's inspired of you, and that it is your very words to us. And so we praise you, Lord, that it's available to us, and that we can study it, and learn of you, and learn of life as a result of it. We pray that you would bless us through this passage today, in thy name we ask it, amen. Our ability to understand intangible concepts is shaped by the day and age in which we live and our experience of things. For instance, we live in a technological era, era, a, a scientific era, so our concepts of health are shaped by knowledge of microbes and viruses and the discovery of medicines that were unknown before the day of the microscope. Health in ancient times was even more mysterious to them than it is to us. In the day of the ancients, the question was, What's wrong with me and how can I relieve this pain? In our day, the question is, how long will it take before the doctor can relieve this pain and how much will it cost me? (laughs) So when it comes to words in scripture like eternity, I recognize that the experience of the ancients with this concept may differ from mine. Our paradigms of experience are different. So how long is eternity? In general, the word eternity is a time word. But what is time? Uh, The people living in Bible times would have understood time in various ways. They would have experienced it in measures of days, in times of day related to the movement of the sun. Seeking a more active measure of the regularity of these passings of time, they invented the sundial, which would give them a measure of the hours and they would have observed the passing of the seasons and the phases of the moon and devised calendars to describe months. The Hebrew calendar had 10 months, and periodically they had to add a month to make up for the inaccuracy of their calendar and get the year back on track. Our Julian calendar has 12 months, and we experience its inaccuracy when every four years we add a day to February— Because it doesn't take an exact and even number of days for the earth to circumscribe the sun. It takes 365 and a fourth days. And so we adjust our calendar every four years. It takes 24 hours for the earth to turn on its axis. And the ancients figured all of these things out without the aid of computers or calculators or even telescopes. They recognized something of the majesty of the stars and the movements of the constellations in the heavens. They studied and mathematically calculated with magnificent accuracy how the earth turned and related these things to heavenly movements so that the placement of the Egyptian pyramids correspond to the stars on Orion's belt, even taking into consideration the earth's wobble called precession that occurs every 10,000 years. The ancients were not stupid. And yet when they gazed at the sky with the naked eye, they could not tell the difference between a galaxy and a star, between a supernova and a star cluster. These definitions and distinctions needed the telescope. They did not know the speed of light or the concept of mass and energy exchange that made the stars burn. The word... For eternity in Psalm 119:89 is a word that means beyond the vanishing point. Beyond the vanishing point. It's a sort of word picture that says this. I can see down the horizon to a certain point and then I cannot see any farther. Eternity is therefore that which I know exists beyond my experience of seeing it. In terms of time experience, they would have understood that people existed before they did. After all, they had parents who had parents who had parents. So one of their concepts of time was generational. Psalm 119.90 uses that concept to describe a sort of idea of eternity from generation to generation. In other words, in perpetuity or perpetually, on and on and on and on. And on and on and on. Our understanding is similar, and yet it's tainted with scientific knowledge that stretches us. We understand that time is a matter of speed and distance. We talk about the nearest star being four light years away. What we're saying is this, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you add up all the seconds in a year and traveled at the speed of light, it would take you over four years to get to that nearest star. That means, as a matter of fact, the light that we are observing from that star started out four years ago. That means the star could collapse upon itself and wink out, and we wouldn't know about it for four years. Our understanding of the vastness of the universe is so much greater than that of the ancients and yet we are mystified about our existence in it just as they were short of biblical revelation. We only have the advantage of understanding that we can see farther than they could with the naked eye. And our concept of eternity relative to the spaciousness of the universe means that we can conceive that there is more universe than we can see. We just cannot see that deeply into space. So the concept of eternity being farther than we can see still works. Just to help you blow your mind with the hugeness of the universe and even our own solar system, let me tell you, You won't get any true idea of this from fantasy movies or science fiction. In order to have stories work, they have to compress time. And they have to invent ways that sound scientifically plausible to shorten the distances. The reality is, there is lots of room in space. Such are the distances in space that it isn't possible in any practical terms to draw the solar system to scale even if you added lots of fold-out pages to your textbooks and used a really long sheet of poster paper, you wouldn't come close. On a diagram of the solar system to scale, with the Earth reduced to the size of a pea, okay? Jupiter would be over 1,000 feet away. And Pluto would be a mile and a half distance and it would be about the size of a bacterium, so you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. On the same scale, Proxima Centauri, our nearest star, would be almost 10,000 miles away. To understand how in the dark we are scientifically about all of this, the scientists are trying to figure out how the universe got here, and time calculations are a part of those figures. The latest scientific theory agrees with the Bible to a certain degree, Science says the universe came from nothing. Now, the Bible says the universe came from nothing. Now, science has to have a scientific term for everything wrapped up in a package so small that it doesn't occupy space or nothing. They call it a singularity. What's a singularity? Well, it's nothing. Scientific term for nothing. They call it a singularity because many scientists don't want to accept the concept of God, and they do not try to explain how the singularity got there. And yet many will devote their entire lives to trying to calculate what happened in the moment of the creation of the universe, which inexplicably in scientific terms took about three minutes... In terms of time and space, the enormity of this is beyond understanding. The size of our known universe is at least 100 billion light years across. And all this emerged in about three minutes. It did not take 100 billion years, according to the best scientific understanding. Science says a singularity expanded into the universe. Their best understanding of why this happened is given by Edward Tryon of Columbia University who once said in answer to the question of why it happened I offer the modest proposal that our universe is simply one of those things which happen from time to time (laughs) Isn't that erudite? (laughs) I would comment that that's another way to try to sound smart instead of saying the truth which would be something like this Well, I don't want to believe in an eternal omnipotent God, so I don't know The Bible says, an eternal God spoke, and the universe came into being out of nothing. But we can go way beyond science at this point. Yes, God has existed before we could measure time, which is a function of speed and distance. And before the universe was created, there was no speed and there was no distance because there was no place. There was not even spaces between places. There was only God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's looking into eternity past, but eternity also encompasses future and whatever happens beyond what we can see into future existence, we can be assured God will be there and continue to exist and continue to be God. Now, all of this really brings us to these verses in Psalm 119. You see, if I want to understand where we came from and what this universe is about, I'm going to have to trust somebody's word about it. The question for us as moderns in a technological world is this. Am I more willing to trust scientists that I can see but who were not there when the universe was created Or am I more willing to trust a God whom I cannot see, but who was there when the universe was created? Since I cannot see God because he is spirit and holy, I wonder if he's given any revelation of himself that would help me trust him and to know what he is like. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. This verse tells me that God has given me something that is just as eternal as he is, but is visible to me and understandable to me and relatable to me. It is his word. And it stands firm in the heavens. That word translated stands firm is an interesting word in the original. It's a word that means to stand up, erect, and at attention. It was sometimes used as a military term to talk about marshaling the troops. God's word is that which marshals the troops of stars and constellations and heavenly objects and holds them all in place. But if we study the Bible more closely, we get even more insight. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Paul goes on to explain more about how Jesus, who was God's living expression, that is what a word is, came to earth as a man and yet continued to keep the universe in place. He's speaking of Christ when he writes to the Colossians, He might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I hear an amen. amen. That's our position. If you continue in your faith established and firm and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which Paul, uh, I, Paul, have become a servant. You know, part of our being able to relate to an eternal God who was there when creation happened is to trust his word. His word was established. His expression of his character and being was established before the universe began. We were conceived in his mind before the universe began. Is it too difficult to believe that a God who was powerful enough to conceive a universe that had just the right makeup and the balance of the physics and powers to sustain our existence would also conceive of our existence in a personal way prior to bringing that universe into existence? Or would you rather believe these things happen from time to time by chance? We understand this not only by God's word but by his works. He says your faithfulness Continues through all generations. You established the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. All things serve you. Verse 90 gives a second picture of eternality. Generation upon generation. This is the concept of consistent perpetuity of mankind's existence. God's fidelity or faithfulness is placed in conjunction with this. The evidence that God is faithful from generation to generation is this. The earth, with its foundational principles of existence in life, endures to this day. Let me borrow from some scientific explanation to help you understand this truth. This is from Britain's royal astronomer, Martin Rees. He maintains that six numbers in particular govern our universe and that if any of these values were changed even very slightly, things could not be as they are. For example, for the universe to exist as it does requires that hydrogen be converted to helium in a precise but comparatively stately manner, specifically in a way that converts seven one-thousandths of its mass to energy. If you lower that value very slightly from 0.007% to 0.006%, say, and no transformation could take place. The universe would consist of hydrogen and nothing else. And if you raise the value very slightly to, say, 0.008%, bonding would be so wildly prolific that the hydrogen would long since have been exhausted. In either case, with the slightest tweaking of the numbers, the universe as we know it and need it would not be here. The thought that God's word, by virtue of his character of fidelity and faithfulness, perpetuates our existence is carried to the next verse with the additional thought, for all things serve you. That is, all the forces in the universe that could preserve life on the earth serve God and are at his disposal for preservation or destruction of life, there is a certain hint of the grace and loving kindness of God in this progression of thought. In light of the great flood and what the author would have known about that from the biblical record, it's not because mankind deserves life that it is granted and that God keeps all the numbers working for our benefit, It is rather because God has chosen to preserve his creation that we are still here. It is about God's character of faithfulness that we exist at all. So how can one generational can a a, a one-generation human connect to an eternal God? How are we to respond to these truths? Well, one of the things is we are to, to delight in God's word and worship by our life actions, the imitation of God. We are to trust God and his word by placing our lives and our life actions in the care of God and his word. That is what the author is saying in poetic form in these next verses. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. In other words, just like everything else in the universe that does not have a free will serves you, so I, of my own free will, also want to line up with the rest of the universe and serve you. I understand that the way to do that is to connect with your word and what your word tells me. You've not left us without revelation of how to live in this universe. And your revelation reaches beyond time into eternity, your dwelling place, and you will preserve my life even unto eternal life. How? By trusting in your word. That's what the gospel is about. The eternal God, because he is faithful, Created a universe that we could live in. He sustains it to preserve our existence, and even after we sinned and fell short of his perfection, he continues to sustain it because he is loving and merciful in his nature. And our very continued existence testifies to that truth. In the New Testament, he gave us further revelation of himself and his desire to have us relate to him by sending his son, Jesus Christ, He entered our temporal, limited existence in order to redeem us so that we could once again have an eternal existence with God. By trusting Christ as our Savior and living according to his life, which is described for us by God's word in character terms in places like the Ten Commandments, we honor the truth of the faithfulness of the eternal God. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, we need to imitate him like little children. There's a second aspect to trusting God. It is to delight in his works. Psalm 104 gives a beautiful picture in poetic form of what that means. I've prepared a a, a slideshow as I read through it. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you're very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. That's an actual shot from the Hubble Space Telescope to a structure in outer space that they call the Pillars of Creation. is that beautiful? He wraps himself in light as with a garment he stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his servants. He sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned to them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines, and it flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants For men to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of a man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well-watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness. It becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at their proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains, and they smoke. Those first 32 verses describe the wonders of God's works, and they are commentary on Psalm 119, 91, which tells us that everything serves him. Everything serves God. And then the psalm closes with the response that we can have. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. You know, we need to keep on singing to God all of our life. We need to have his music in our heads as meditation all our lives. I came across this story that I think illustrates this in a powerful way. It's titled The Sparrow at Starbucks, The Song That Silenced the Cappuccino Machine. It was written by John Thomas Oakes. It was chilly in Manhattan, but warm inside the Starbucks shop on 51st Street and Broadway. Just a skip up from Times Square, early November weather in New York City holds only the slightest hint of the bitter chill of late December and January but it's enough to send the masses crowding indoors to vie for available space and warmth. For a musician, it's the most lucrative Starbucks location in the world, I'm told. And consequently, the tips can be substantial if you play your tunes right. Apparently, we were striking all the right chords that night because our basket was almost overflowing. It was a fun, low-pressure gig, I was playing keyboard and singing backup for my friend who also added rhythm with an arsenal of percussion instruments. We mostly did pop songs from the 40s to the 90s with a few original tunes thrown in. During our emotional rendition of the classic, If You Don't Know Me By Now, I noticed a lady sitting in one of the lounge chairs across from me, and she was swaying to the beat and singing along. After the tune was over, she approached me. I apologize for singing along on that song. Did it bother you, she asked. No, I replied, we love it when the audience joins in. Would you like to sing up front for the next selection? To my delight, she accepted my invitation. You choose, I said. What are you in the mood to sing? Well, do you know any hymns? Hymns? This woman didn't know who she was dealing with. I cut my teeth on hymns. Before I was even born, I was going to church. I gave our guest singer a knowing look and said, name one. Oh, I don't know. There are so many good ones. You pick one. Okay, I replied. How about his eye is on the sparrow? My new friend was silent and her eyes averted. And then she fixed her eyes on mine again and said, yeah, let's do that one. She slowly nodded her head and put down her purse and straightened her jacket and faced the center of the shop. And with my two bars set up, she began to sing. Why should I be discouraged? Why should the shadows come? And the audience of coffee drinkers was transfixed. Even the gurgling noises of the cappuccino machine ceased as the employees stopped what they were doing to listen And then the song rose to its conclusion. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Holy moment. When the last note was sung, the applause crescendoed to a deafening roar that would have rivaled a sold out crowd at Carnegie. Embarrassed, the woman tried to shout over the din. Oh, y'all, go back to your coffee. I didn't come here to do a concert. I just came in here to get something to drink just like you. But the ovation continued. I embraced my new friend. You, my dear, have made my whole year. That was beautiful. Well, it's funny that you picked that particular hymn, she said. Why is that? Well, she hesitated again. That was my daughter's favorite song. Really, I exclaimed. Yes, she said, and then grabbed my hands. But this time, the applause had subsided, and it was business as usual. She was 16 and died of a brain tumor last week. I said the first thing that found its way through my stunned silence. Are you going to be okay? She smiled through tear-filled eyes and squeezed my hands. I'm going to be okay. I've just got to keep trusting the Lord and singing his songs, and everything's going to be just fine. And she picked up her bag and gave me her card, and then she was gone. Was it just a coincidence that we happened to be singing in that particular coffee shop on that particular November night. Coincidence that this wonderful lady just happened to walk into that particular shop. Coincidence that of all the hymns to choose from, I just happened to pick the very hymn that was the favorite of her daughter who had just died the week before. I refuse to believe it. God has been arranging encounters in human history since the beginning of time. And it's no stretch for me to imagine that he could reach into a coffee shop in midtown Manhattan and turn an ordinary gig into a revival. It was a great reminder that if we keep trusting him and singing his songs, everything's going to be okay. Keep trusting him and singing his songs. He's watching over you. And he has known you from eternity past, right up to this very moment. I've asked David if we would close with singing a couple of songs.
1: Pastor was preaching this message. I also thought of this song. How great is our God? Is a question. We don't even comprehend His greatness. It's a statement, but it's also a question. His greatness is so far beyond our our understanding. Let's stand and sing of the greatness that we understand of our God. How great is our God? darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice and trembles at his voice how great
0: may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.